Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. Cardinal Francis George called liturgy the art of worshiping God as he wants to be worshiped. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. How do we know how to worship God and where does this all come from? So without further ado, episode 20 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of ultra boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Sometimes I this get confused when somebody says liturgical <clears throat> movement because I just imagine somebody on a unitard uh, parading down the aisle. Yeah, don't imagine that. Yeah, That's not liturgical movement. That's what self-expressive movement imposed upon the liturgy. Mm-hmm. That's There's a, a subjective, self-imposed, personal judgment. Well, that's, actually, that's right. The, uh, the triumph of subjectivity is I move around and stretch out my arms in any old way, whatever I feel like, and make everybody look at me. Yeah, but what if they have ribbons? doesn't matter. Which reminds me. Uh-oh. Ribbons? Speaking, speaking of speaking of that, uh, our Benedict the Sixteenth uh, gave us one way to look at the liturgy that would address this very with or without situation. ribbons. Uh, I think without ribbons. Sans Although you ribbons? don't know, you don't know. Okay, because uh, it kind of ter- part of the story is uh, the golden calf, and so who knows what? Uh, Ooh, may golden going calf. On I blame yeah. Aaron. Yeah, but how to worship God is. Uh, uh, is really one of the things he talks about in the first chapter of his book on the spirit of liturgy. Now, we had a podcast once where we talked about the playfulness of the liturgy. And this, in fact, is where ago. it was, yeah. Uh, this is where Cardinal Ratzinger begins his discussion. He acknowledges all those things that uh, people like Gardini and others before him talked about, these comparisons between the liturgy and playfulness. And he, he, he sees that there is some similarities, but in the end, he says, they fall short that there's another place, another way to look at the liturgy that can help us to look at its essence. So, so, so more about that, so, Chris. So, okay. So when Cardinal Ratzinger uh, talks about, see, and th- this, is, this is a good thing to do because there's the, the, the liturgy is a great mystery that cannot be understood in one single way. So the Catechism gives us one way. The Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Liturgy gives us uh, another way. The, uh, this playfulness analogy gives us another insight. And here's a fourth one that helps to give us, uh, uh, to round out the picture. Of course, there's many more. But when uh, Pope Benedict, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, when he talks about the liturgy, he goes back to this uh, account in Exodus of the deliberations between uh, Moses and Pharaoh. Now, and he makes this observation, and let me ask you guys, what were Moses and Pharaoh talking about when they had their meetings? Uh, I'm probably going to be wrong here, because I always am. I hope you are, because but, it'll make, yeah, make me um, look smart. So I guess the, what I would say is the deliverance of, of his people. Uh, sort of. Okay. Or Dennis? Uh, the right way to worship the real, whose gods was stronger, right? Didn't they bring out the sorcerers and argue over the... Well, they, they had some of that, yeah. yeah. What, what uh, Pope Benedict suggests is that uh, what, what he thinks most people would answer is that they were talking about going to the promised land, okay, that when Moses came before Pharaoh, it was about going to the promised land. But he says a closer reading shows that that's not, in fact, what they were talking about at all. What were they talking about, Chris? What they were talking don't, don't about. Don't leave us on the edge of our seats here. 
I'm getting, I'm getting there. What, he, what they were talking about is, as you started to suggest, the right way to worship God, what he calls orthodoxa. So ortho, you know, when Orthodox. Agnes, yeah, or orthodontist when you're uh, when Agnes gets older, and she needs an uh, orthodontist. I, I yes. right teeth. To make yeah. her teeth uh, right. So ortho and doxa I'm means, need a raise means that. <laughs> yeah, you are. And that, that's why they wanted out of Egypt, right? So they could go worship properly in their yes. own land. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't just the political sense of being out of slavery. That's absolutely true. Oh, thanks. And so when uh, when you read the account, so the first time that uh, so so God tells Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh and say, uh, "Let my people go three days into the wilderness so that they might worship me." That's what they're arguing about. And so Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says he just that, wanted a couple of days off. <laughs> well, three. Oh, okay. Hey, uh, See, so you're being like Pharaoh now, Jesse. <laughs> uh, well, ask for an inch, take a mile. You, you know go, what I mean? You can't let them do that. Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh and they relay this. God of our fathers said to let his people go three days in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, "Well." I'll tell you what you can all go but you can't go three days you have to stay you can't go into the wilderness you have to stay in this land and so Moses says well sorry that's not what God told us to do so Moses goes and God tries to soften up Pharaoh a little bit with some of these first plagues and so then they come back a second time and make the same uh, command from God and this time Pharaoh says uh, well I'll tell you what only the men can go into the wilderness but the women and the children they have to stay behind okay well this is unacceptable too so Moses and Pharaoh, Moses leaves, God sends plagues again. They come back a third time. And this time, uh, Pharaoh says to them, okay, everybody can go three days out in the wilderness, except you have to leave your cattle behind. Okay? And Moses at this point, you can just imagine him throwing his hands up in exasperation. Saying, I would what, too. What are you not getting here? Uh, the point is that, Pharaoh, it's not up to you. Quite frankly, it's not up to me how we're going to worship God. God says we'll do it this way. And it's not up for debate. It's not up for negotiation. So they leave again, and there's more plagues, ending with the death of the firstborn. But the point of all of this... Is that right Pharaoh Exodus, doesn't know how to listen? Well, he's not alone, though. See, the, <laughs> uh, the person in the leotards and the ribbons dancing up the aisle likewise doesn't know how to listen. And we don't know how to listen. It's God who tells us how to worship him, and not us telling God how we will worship him. So Pharaoh... Excuse me. So Moses leads the people to Mount Sinai, and at Sinai, God gives Moses the commandments that tell in great detail how it is that the people are going to worship him. And right after that, by the way, he tells him how to build the tabernacle, which is first how to worship and then how to do it, right? How to, what kind of building it would look like. What kind of building would it look like? Well, he, he sees this vision of uh, heavenly vision. And then later on, they talk about always follow the vision, always follow the vision. And in fact, it's mentioned in the letters of the Hebrews about the vision that God um, gave uh, so that the, the worship of the temple was modeled on a heavenly type that prefigures any human attempts to, to organize it. Yeah, but in all of this, whether it's the temple or the words or the priesthood or the sacrifices or the law or the, the, the commandments, whatever they are, is what they express is this right relationship with God. And for if you could put a word on what uh, Pope Benedict believes uh, worship to be, it's all about relationships. It's all about relationships. How do we relate rightly, orthodoxa, to God? The essence of the liturgy then is this relationship between us and God. Did you ever go through that phase of life where you bought people Christmas presents because you bought them for what you thought they 
ought to have rather than what they actually like. Wait, you're not supposed to do it like that? <laughs> it's like, See, oh. if they really don't like it, then they'll say, oh, you want this? Yeah. Here you go. My friend has all you, these tacky clothes. Let me get her something je- nice for a change. I bought you a Jenny Craig subscription. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so don't get somebody something that you think they should have. Get them what they actually should have. Well, right. Or, you know, when you're talking about God, God knows how he wants to be worshipped, not because he's a tyrant, because he knows what we need in order to become in right relationship with him. And if you start worshiping things like the golden calf, that's not going to help you in the process of reestablishing that relationship. Yeah. So Pharaoh doesn't tell the people how to relate to God. God tells people how to relate to him. And the content of the law, uh, just elaborate on this point about relationships a little bit. It's not just how we relate to God, but when we get this relationship in order, all of our other relationships our spouses, our children, our fellow man, with ourselves, uh, with all of creation, creation come into yeah. order as well, right? So, you know, in the beginning, Adam and Eve severed that relationship that they had with God. And what happened to all of their other relationships? They fell apart. They all fell apart. And so Adam's relationship with the creation, you know, goes, you know, falls apart, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you'll raise nothing but thistles and thorns. Uh, Not to mention the relationship with Eve, right? Yeah, that fell apart too. When, when, right. when God says to, uh, to Adam, you know, where are you? And he, uh, he says, I was naked, so I hid myself. And God says, ah, so you have eaten from the tree from which I forbade you to eat. And Adam famously says... She did it. Yeah, she did it. It wasn't me. It was, <laughs> it was this woman who you put here with me. She's the one who gave me the fruit. And so God turns to Eve and says, part of your punishment will be the children that you bear will be in pain and agony. And those children will kill themselves. You know, Cain and Abel kill each other. And so all by breaking that right relationship that they had with God, all of their other subsequent relationships fall apart too. And so conversely then, when we write that relationship with God, and this is what the commandments that God gave to the people through Moses told them, this is how you shall relate to me. When that gets restored, then all of the other relationships can be restored as well between spouses and children, your fellow man, and all of the rest. So this is why there is liturgical law. This is why there are liturgical norms. This is why these things matter. You know, people say, oh, you're just a bunch of fussy, you know, liturgiologists. All you care about is rubrics or whatever. Nobody ever calls somebody a liturgiologist because nobody knows that that's a word. They say it implicitly, even if they don't know know the word. But basically they say, you're fussy. You're imposing on my freedom. I want to do whatever I want here. This comes after the discussion of playfulness, right? But the idea is you play in a place that is welcoming and good for you. If you tell the kids, go go play in the poison ivy and the thorns, that, that's not helping them really in the in the long run. So Cardinal Ratzinger mentions that false worship usually can be described as fantasy rather than imagination. So we have this power in our in ourselves that God gave us to imagine things, which is kind of funny because you imagine things not as they are by your sense data, but as they could be or as they should be. Um, how can you imagine heaven? How can you imagine your own glorification? It's an experience that a lot of that happens in the realm of imagination liturgically. So worship always has this anticipation of the heavenly future. It can't be an anticipation of some other thing or it becomes this projection of some worldly desire rather than God telling us how we best can become reunited with him. Dennis, is this where the golden calf comes in? Would that be an example of this type of pro- projection, this fantasy projection? Well, sure, yeah. There's, God doesn't seem to be answering us. Well, those Egyptians, they worship bulls. Why don't we just make a big golden calf and worship that instead and so instead of developing a right relationship with god they develop a false relationship with you know false god or false worship and then god isn't just like you didn't worship me you're gonna go in your room for the next ten thousand years it's like no you've got to stop this 
because you will constantly fall back into the wrong relationship and I want you to be in a relationship with me. I don't know. I remember as a kid sticking uh, bobby pins in the electric plugs, you know, and my, like, get the That is something I have never done, but it explains a lot now. Right. If I wanted to do that out of idle curiosity, my parents would swoop in and say, you will not do that anymore. And I'm like, well, I want to. Well, so what? You know, it doesn't match. It's not good for me. And uh, they have to stop. So, you know, Scott Hahn has been saying for many years that the destruction of bulls in the temple or in the tabernacle of Moses was actually kind of a, a long uh, punishment for worshiping the golden calf. So you want a golden calf? Well, you're, you're not going to do it. You're going to destroy it many times a day. That which you are tempted to idolize, you are going to ritually destroy until the time comes when the real God shows up in Christ. And then you won't need to do that anymore because your kind of punishment time is over. That's like yeah. when you're playing, when you're fighting over a toy with your parents and then Dad smashes and says, now nobody gets it. <laughs> That's right. Or, you don't do that, do you, Jesse? Yeah. Now that no, you're a dad? No, 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 no. <laughs> well, actually, I have some friends who, when their sons argue over a toy, they say, learn how to share or I'm taking it away from both of you. And they... They well, real. that's what a reasonable parent would say, I right. guess. But yeah. that's it. You know, you're going to use it right or lose it. And uh, destroying the calf was the constant reminder, not in a mean way, but you can't fall into worshiping a thing that you're destroying every day. Yeah, related to that, and I hope my memory serves me right, as I read, I think this was in an Edward Shree book on the, the real story, which is a very, very good and accessible read. Uh, but he mentions that initially it was the father that was the priest of the family, and he would pass on the priesthood to his son. Right. Oldest son. Until right? the, the golden calf. Right? Until the golden calf, where God took away the priesthood from the father, and he gave it to the Levites because they, uh, they weren't exercising it rightly. Okay? But in all of this, is God is training all of us through the chosen people about how, in the end, to relate to him rightly. And ultimately, the right relationship will be restored through Jesus. Now, this, uh, this is from a quote from Cardinal Ratzker on a book called Sin and Salvation. He says, The Son, who is by nature relationship and relatedness, reestablishes relationships. How cool is that? Wait, say that again. <laughs> the Son, who is by nature relationship and relatedness, reestablishes relationships. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I think he overuses <laughs> one word in there. But, but it, it, maybe it sounds a little too Oprah. You know, it's just it's all about relationships with each other. But this is, again, the essence of the liturgy, looking at it through the eyes of Cardinal Ratzinger, is relationship, how to relate rela- rightly to God. And it's finally, when, when the fullness of time had come, and God had trained the chosen people uh, to restore this relationship uh, with him, is the son comes and he replaces the bull. And in a certain sense, he becomes, you know, in a, in a real he's the sense. Bull, right? He's the sacrifice. He's yeah. the sacrificial lamb or bull and also the priest, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is now the, the, the son, like it had meant to be uh, uh, initially. And so through Jesus Christ, our relationship with God is... Uh, reestablished, which is the orthodoxa uh, has come to us once again. All that which the, the Pharaoh and Moses were speaking about all those years ago has become realized in the person of Jesus Christ and now continues today in the church and her priesthood. Right, right. Cardinal Ratzinger said that the uh, glory of God is man fully alive, but that life is not just any old thing. It's the vision of God. So the life comes from God and you have to get that kind of life put on you, not something false, not something else. So law and worship are related. You have to do it right. And then ethics, which is 
you know, the right action has to be involved as well. So it's not just whatever you want, they're all the same. Isn't that Irenaeus? Glory of God is man fully alive. Sorry. It, it is, but Cardinal Rasker makes a great, a, okay. uh, a great deal about I, this. I, that's but, what I thought. I just yeah. want to make sure. But you're right about this relationship. You talk about law and ethics. What Cardinal Ratzinger will say is in the law that was given uh, at Sinai through Moses, there were three relationships that are addressed in that. One is the relationship with God, which he calls cult. Cult is the right relationship with the gods. Um, law is the relationship that we have with others. And ethics is the relationship that one has with himself. And so even at, uh, after the fall, you know, Adam became at odds even with himself. You know, even as, and I think anybody listening, uh, certainly those of us around the table can attest to this, right? The good, would, the good that we want to do, we end up not doing. And that which we don't want to do, we end up doing. We're, we're at odds at battle with ourselves. But in reestablishing right relationship, which is what Jesus does and who is at the heart of the liturgy with God, then as we said before, all of these other relationships, we can overcome our own concupiscence and become... Uh, become the men and women that we were meant to be we can our, our family life can become better the relationship with our marriages and spouse and even uh, laudato si and the relationship that we have with uh, all of nature and creation can be restored and it works outside the family too if you're not warring with your next door neighbor well then your next door neighbors are not warring with the next town over and the states are not warring with each other and the nations are not warring with each other and humanity is not killing each other then what are we talking about? We're talking about building up the kingdom of God in the world. And this is why the liturgical reform was considered so urgently important in the 20th century, because how do you overcome the effects of the fall and concupiscence and selfish desires? It's right worship. And if you're not doing it as well as you ought to be, you're not going to be transformed, glorified as much as you ought to be. And the result of that will be things like nuclear bombs dropped on people. And it sounds kind of crazy. What does, you know, singing the, using the rubrics have to do with nuclear bombs? Well, they're all related. If you're not fully receiving the life of Christ, then you're not being fully transformed to be like Christ. And if you're not like Christ, you'll be like somebody else, not as good as Christ. And what's more, if we are made in the image and likeness of God, and uh, if we don't know God, we can't know ourselves. And if we don't fully know ourselves, we can't fully... Uh, participate in relationships with other people because, you know, we won't be true or authentic. And so this is kind of like what you guys are saying. It's very ordinal. So it starts with our right relationship with God and being in harmony because that's the way we were created. We were created in harmony with God. And as long as we maintain that, um, we can have everything else align. And so that's kind of what we get to when you know, we hear somebody and we might think they're being, uh, you know, a little ritualistic about liturgy or things like that. But mostly it's the information that's been handed to us by God, the solution to the fall. Right. And the church is the safeguard, safeguards the rules of the liturgy. So that's the norm. If you do what the church asks, you're not being ritualistic. You're, you are at the norm, normative rules that everybody's supposed to follow. And any time you step away from those in an illegitimate way, then that's a self-will and that's not right worship. Well, I mean, read the book of uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and you want to talk about liturgical rules. I mean, those are rules given by God to show the worshipers how he is to be worshiped. And, uh, and they all correlate with something that they did wrong. Is that correct? So anytime there's yeah. a, a rule or something imposed upon the Israelites, it's because of some abuse or something yeah, like that. It's kind that. of a hyper response, you know, to look at the Old Testament now and say, well, that's, that's the legalism we're supposed to have. You know, they were in a bad situation. After the golden calf, everything really changes. You know, they, they're so off the track. It's like you wouldn't keep your 
son in his room forever just after mm-hmm. he needs to sit in his room and think about what he's done. And once he's figured that out, then you say, go out and play. It'd be like the Vatican saying, if you, don't re- if you keep receiving in your hands, then no more hands. Right. Nobody could have any more hands. You must yeah. cut off your hands. Right. <laughs> but so we're, fortunately, we're in the time when Christ is doing the worship. So Christ is the one taking all of us up into the, the life of the Trinity. So he's doing it perfectly. And our job is to experience it as perfectly as we can. We don't have to worry. If I didn't do it exactly right, you know, I'm going to fry forever. But we should emulate that, right? I mean, exactly. We should, we should try our very Because best. that's the way we can get the fullest glorification from it. Mm-hmm. And that's real. That's the good news, right? It's not, you did it wrong, so I'm angry at you. It's, here's a missed opportunity to get more of the divine life that we're all seeking. All right, excellent. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's time to answer another uh, liturgy guys question. What do you guys think? Let's do it. Hey, liturgy guy listeners, this is your host Jesse Weiler, and before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our young adult liturgy conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this young adult liturgy conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.btransfigured.com. I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I'd like to recommend the Liturgical Institute. I have the privilege of teaching here at Mundelein Seminary in Chicago. Every Monday I come out to teach the seminarians, and right alongside of Mundelein Seminary is the Liturgical Institute. Founded back in 2000, professors like Dennis McNamara have been teaching liturgical studies for MA students, for those seeking a licentiate or even a doctorate. And you dive into the scriptures, but not just in study, but praying together, morning and evening prayer as a community of students. At the same time, you're going into all of the liturgical documents of the church, discovering the sacred riches of the living tradition and really connecting scripture and the liturgy. I'd urge you to consider coming here to study, especially if you want like a master's degree to work for the church and at the same time, share the riches of the beauty of the mass. Thank you. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right. That is a sneak peek to our question for this week. I may cut this out. All right. Cut it we, out, have a qu- we have a question from Tina. Hi, Tina. Hi, Tina. Okay, good. Chris has responded. That's good. Good news for you, Tina. Uh, Tina says, Hi, Liturgy guys. I'm a fan of your podcast, and I so much enjoy listening to intelligent conversations about Catholic liturgy. And you listen to this podcast. (laughs) Uh, She must be talking about all of my intellectual contributions. I was just thinking that, Jesse. All right, so uh, she says, I have a question for you. My parish has started beginning Mass prior to the processional when parishioners are taking to the pews with, quote, okay, who has a birthday this week? Who has an anniversary or other celebration? End quote. And then people clap or cheer. After Mass and after we've finished singing the recessional hymn, the choir plays Happy Birthday, and parishioners are supposed to stand and sing happy, the Happy Birthday song, presumably to these folks who self-identified prior to the Mass. Is this a new trend at parishes? I don't like being expected to stand and sing Happy Birthday when it 
all I really want to do is sit and talk with Jesus and think about the homily and scripture readings. But if this is something uh, the liturgy guys tell me is not prohibited, I will learn to live with it, although unhappily. Well, thank you for your <laughs> dedication to our podcast. Many thanks, and God bless you both. Please keep podcasting. Uh, I have sympathy for this one. I used to go to a parish where it used to be, they'd say, make the sign of the cross and then say, are there any birthdays or anniversaries this week? And nobody ever wanted to raise their hand. And he'd say, I know there's got to be somebody. And everybody would sit there nervously until somebody raised a hand. And then he would say, I knew there was somebody. And he'd every single week, nobody raised their hand. And every single week he would say, I knew there was somebody. And then it was this awkward thing that we'd put up with until it was over and then went on with the mass. And so I think there, there's no rule as far as I know that prohibits asking people if there are birthdays or anniversaries this week. But as Chris taught me years ago, liturgical law is prescriptive and not proscriptive. It tells you what to do. It doesn't tell you every single thing you can't do. It's pro- yeah, uh, it's proscriptive and not prohibitive? Prescriptive. It prescribes what to do, but not proscriptive in terms of what you can't do. And so you have to ask the question, is, does this belong to the liturgy? Does it aid people in, in being uh, appropriately disposed for the beginning of liturgy, or is it a distraction? And that's the way that I would come at the question. What do you yeah. add to that, Chris? Yeah, well, first of all, having a birthday or celebrating a birthday or applauding someone's birthday or singing to them on the birthday, these aren't bad things. Um, but just because it's not a bad thing doesn't mean that it has a, has a place uh, in the liturgy. You know, the, <laughs> the word profane... Uh, the phanum uh, means the temple, and the profanum are those, for example, in the, in the courtyards, uh, uh, in the temple in, in the Old Covenant, are the, court, the, the areas pro, before, leading to, in support of the phanum, the temple. And so to be profane isn't you know, evil or wicked. I mean, it can be good, but it just doesn't belong inside of the temple. And I think these would be one of these things. And as Dennis says, you know, the ultimate litmus is, is this to help me to become a saint and help me to glorify God. In the end, if you wanted to look in the, in the general instruction, you're right. It wouldn't say anywhere it's prohibited to, say, ha- to sing happy birthday before mass. But what it does prescribe is that silence is an appropriate, uh, what are you going to say, uh, appropriate uh, experience both before the liturgy and after. It says, even before the celebration itself, it is pra- a praiseworthy practice for silence to be observed in the church, in the sacristy, in the vesting room, in the adjacent areas. Uh, silence is one of the things that is, is difficult, uh, especially for us postmodern. As soon as you get in the car, you want to turn that radio on. And Pope John Paul II talked about this pedagogical daring in silence, how to teach us to be silent. And this is what the mind of the church is, is to have a little bit of uh, recollective silence both before and after the liturgy. Save the happy birthday for the donuts downstairs. And there may be people who say, oh, we want people to feel welcome and included, and there's nothing wrong with that, except the possibility of inclusion and welcome is at a much higher plane, liturgically speaking. What You have been welcomed into the family of God, into the mystical body, into the presence of the Holy of Holies before God, in whom you stand in awe. I mean, peaceful delight and love, but also in awe. And so these are the things that should be manifested and prepared for. I would say this is probably more distracting than it is helpful, and it's also quite particular rather than universal. Not everybody in the church can participate in this because it's foreign to the nature of the liturgy itself, and it tends to be divisive as this uh, person is experiencing. So, and, and again, again, it seems like what she's talking about, it's before the liturgy and after the liturgy, right. but at least there is something in the general instruction that talks about yeah. 
you know, the nature of what you should be doing before yeah. and after. And, you know, that's at least a good uh, going on the right track there, not to put it in the middle of the liturgy. It takes place before and it takes place after, but maybe a little bit uh, more distantly before and more distantly after would be even the better option. Okay. Well, Tina, I hope that answers your question. And if uh, you would like to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.